Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open up to Luke chapter 22 and stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll read Luke 22, verses 21 to 30. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom... I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. There's a proverb that I love. You probably like it too because it resonates with you, and we've all experienced it. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Trying to make somebody happy or or trying to make somebody merry, which is a different word than happy, who is troubled by, you know, trying to do so by excessive mirth. uh, Is to miss the entire context of that person's being that person's emotional, you know, being at that moment. It is to play the court gesture at a funeral and to entirely ignore what is going on around you. It's to be clueless about the context. In a similar way, the conversation of the apostles on this night, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, is entirely missing the context. But don't be so quick to judge the apostles. How often are you pridefully, or not not merely pridefully, but just ignorantly dissonant with the broader context you're in? It happens to me a lot. It happens to you a lot. We asked ourselves, how could it possibly be that the apostles would, at this time, 
with Jesus right before them, reclining to eat the Passover meal at the uh, right after the institution of the Lord's table. How could it possibly be that the apostles would would get in an argument about which one of them was regarded to be the greatest? Now that argument about who is the greatest flows out of Jesus' conversation about Judas. The argument about who is greatest flows out of Jesus' statement that there was one bad apple in their midst. Right, And it appears um, that conversation that the apostles were having went from it's not me to it's not me because of so-and-so. So after Jesus institutes the Lord's table, he says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. There is one there who will give Jesus up to those authorities that have been driven to jealousy and murderous anger by his teaching and preaching and his miracles and all of his rebukes and his words for them. And what a striking way for Jesus to put it. The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. So close, such intimate language. Ryle understands this to mean that Jesus partook of that bread and that wine, that communion at this time. Others contend that Jesus never would have let Judas eat that meal and thereby allow himself to eat the body and the blood of Jesus. And the Roman Catholics take that position. They have to protect their view of the sacraments, right? Their ex opere operato view of the sacrament. That grace is infused to all those who partake of those elements. Calvin only goes so far as to say that it was probable that Judas was present when those elements were distributed. The difficulty comes when we look at the other accounts of this in the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and John. In Matthew and Mark, the institution of the Lord's Supper follows Jesus' words about a betrayer. And so he talks about Judas, and then it goes into the the institution of the Lord's table. In John, you remember, Judas leaves the group immediately after Jesus says, what you are doing, do it fast. And Judas gets up and leaves. And yet Mark says this, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And yet, this, this statement precedes, it precedes the institution in Mark of the Lord's table. So it may be referring to the Passover ritual only before the institution of the new covenant meal. Now, why is all this important? The, the question, and I don't know if it can be resolved, is this. Would Jesus knowingly allow an impenitent sinner to come to the Lord's table? If so, he would be making Judas an example of the unworthy partaking of the Lord's table. 
He would be eating judgment upon himself. And we certainly see that worked out in the remainder of Judas' life and certainly in his terrible end, hanging himself. Or we take the clues from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, and conclude that Luke is not here concerned to give a chronological view of things. Rather, he wants to place Judas' betrayal up against the apostles arguing about their greatness, so as to make that contrast. And indeed, what, what Jesus says about Judas in this passage, the hand of the man who is betraying me is with me on the table, speaks of proximity, but not feeding. His hand is with mine on the table. So the weight of the Gospels leads me to believe that Judas was either not there at the institution of the Lord's table or that at the very least he did not eat. But Peter, the one who would deny Jesus ate, and the other ten who would scatter when Jesus was hanging on the tree the next day, they ate. Sinners ate at that meal, right? But believing sinners, believing sinners ate at that meal. Judas, the son of perdition, was not a believing sinner. He was an unbelieving sinner. And so if he ate, he ate unworthily and reaped consequent judgment. Or if he did not eat, It was because he was excluded, he was cast out, he was forbidden in God's providence to take a meal that was only for God's children. Now as to the next statement in verse 22, Jesus places right next to to one another God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's one one of those verses you go to. When you want to place those things right next to one another. And as is the norm, God's decrees do not lessen or mitigate or cast away in any way man's responsibility. This passage could be paraphrased this way. God has caused what is about to happen to happen and Judas happily and willingly went along with it. And is guilty. And if you prefer a more theological explanation, here's Calvin in one of those just classic, straight-up Calvin Reformed theology passages that hold forth the often misunderstood view of God's sovereignty. Okay, he says this, And yet Christ does not affirm that Judas was freed from blame on the ground that he did nothing but what God had appointed. For though God, by his righteous judgment, appointed for the price of our redemption the death of his son, yet nevertheless Judas, in betraying Christ, brought upon himself righteous condemnation because he was full of treachery and avarice. In short, God's determination that the world should be redeemed does not at all interfere with Judas being a wicked traitor. Hence we perceive that though men can do nothing but what God has appointed, still this does not free them from condemnation when they are led by a wicked desire to sin. For though God directs them by an unseen bridle to an end which is unknown to them, nothing is farther from their intention than to obey his decrees. 
Those two principles, no doubt, appear to to human reason to be inconsistent with one another. That God regulates the affairs of men by his providence in such a manner that nothing is done by his will and command, and yet he damns the reprobate by whom he is carried into execution what he intended. But we see how Christ, in this passage, reconciles both. By pronouncing a curse on Judas, though what he contrived against God has been appointed by God. Not that Judas' act of betraying ought strictly to be called the work of God, but because God turned the treachery of Judas so as to accomplish his own purpose. Right? You get it. Those are things we hold together in tension. That Jesus brought these two things together, God's decree and Judas's betrayal, forbids us from understanding what is going on here in any other way. How could we read this any other way? If you deny God's decrees, you make God impotent. If you deny man's responsibility, you begin to wonder why God still finds fault. And then Romans 9 has your answer. But we move on now to the ensuing debate. And again, Luke purposely places this right after the discussion between the apostles of who would betray Jesus. That conversation quickly became something else. Right? It went from not me to not me because, I mean, look at what I've done. See my faith. Remember my confession that I gave. Remember that time I cast out that demon. And it was quick. And I did it with a word. And you know what? Remember when you said this and you said that and it was stupid and it didn't turn out to be right? Honestly, if you stop and think for a moment about the way you talk and dispute with others, I think it can be fairly said that most of what you say, most of what I say, is to convince others of our greatness. When someone mentions how much they suffered, we figure out a way to work in how we've suffered a little more. It's twisted. When someone says they worked hard, we figure out a way, subtle or not so subtle, to say that we've worked harder. Often it just appears that we're continuing the conversation, right? It's just we're we're going on, we're we're, we're talking about suffering, we're talking about working hard. But really, you know in your heart what you're doing. You know in your conscience that you're trying to convince others of your greatness. The more you talk, the more you do this. The more words you say in a day, the more often you're trying to do this. You're trying to assert your greatness. And by the unsanctified urges of our flesh, we do this when it is completely inappropriate to do it. 
Men parade themselves and their accomplishments and their degrees before general assembly. Come on. Men parade others and their accomplishments before the church. And suddenly we're left thinking the church is comprised of great men. The greatest of men. The, the, the most noble, educated well-trained, perfectly pedigreed men who don't really need Jesus Christ. The church is great because of her great men. Like these apostles, the church was getting off to a great, Strong start. They're sitting there arguing about their greatness as Jesus is being led to the slaughter. The church is great, not because of of her great men, right? The church is great because of her great Savior. The church is great only because of Jesus Christ and his greatness. I mean... Oh, man. I mean, take this statement that was made in favor of putting together a study committee to determine whether we should ordain women to the pastorate. Here's one man's argument, a pastor in Nashville. He says, I think this is a great year. We have a moderator who is elected by acclamation without a single, a single vote against him. If not now, when? How many times will we have to come and this be rejected before we listen? No votes against this wonderful moderator means we should consider compromising the clear testimony of Scripture. It's men arguing about their greatness. I imagine that the arguments of the apostles that evening were just as ridiculous as that one. I'm from the west side of Jerusalem. You know, you had to be convinced to follow Jesus initially, but he just called me and boom, I followed him. I was up and after him. He said three words to me, come follow me. It's these kind of arguments that the apostles are having before their Savior bears the wrath of God for their sins. And I make these arguments about myself all the time. Notice that it says a dispute arose among them. Not simply a conversation. The Greek word is vivid, philonikos which is one of those combo words like philanthropos, right, which means love of man. Philonikos means love of fighting, love of strife. 
means to delight in fighting. It appears that the apostles threw off their inhibitions and anything that might make them defer to one another and went all in defending their own reputation right here at the Last Supper. Right? This, this was not the subtle ways that you and I tr- try constantly, subliminally to one-up others. This was out-in-the-open argument. Their vain ambition, their overinflated self-esteem, their self-conceited boasting besmears, that's a great word, besmears this upper room. And Jesus, Jesus Christ, the emptier of self, the layer off of eternal glory, right, witnesses this philonikos. He left his father. He came to serve these disputers, to save them, to rescue them, to redeem them. And as he's on the verge of making the final bloody sacrifice for them, they dispute about who is greatest, attempting to prove that they would be incapable of betraying him because of their greatness. It is absolutely antithetical and inappropriate to the moment. They are vinegar on soda. Jesus responds, and how does he respond? He responds by defining greatness. And how does Jesus define greatness? Is it power? Is greatness power? No, that's what the Gentiles, those Romans think. A man's greatness corresponds to his position and his rank and his minions. Right? The one, the ones who have authority in those systems, Jesus said, are called benefactors, doers of good. And he is not being positive by saying that. Right? This is what we do in our culture, is it not? The great men are the men who are written about in the papers, whose net worth is debated, who have benevolent foundations that do works that, that largely are not benevolent, like they support the killing of children and the keeping of Africans from having children. Our benefactors are our rich man, our philanthropists. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Our benefactors are our politicians, Barack Obama and John Roberts and Bill Clinton and Rudy Giuliani. Right? We call them out. Oh, benefactors, will you save us, please? And they say, we will for a price. For a price. The price is your family. Give it up and you will have benefits. Right? The price is your retirement. Give it up and we'll make sure that you get your social security. The price is your religious freedom. Give it up and we'll make sure you stay on faculty. The powers that be... Lord their power over others. It is leverage by which they get what they want. They speak incessantly of their great accomplishments and great people and great greatness and the great people that they spend their time with. 
I mean, I do not need to convince you of this during an election cycle. But this is not funny. It is damnable pride. That is distinctively not what greatness consists of, says the Son of God. That is, though, what most of us instinctively think greatness consists of, which is power. This is the temptation of anyone who has been given authority. Bosses, police officers, governing magistrates, pastors and elders, husbands, right? The tendency is for for us to think our greatness consists in our power. And that is when we begin lording over our employees, our people, our constituents, our congregations, our wives, our children. There is danger in saying what I'm saying in a culture that hates and is largely thrown off authority. But it is something that we all need to consider. It's not that Jesus is here saying, throw off all authority. Jesus did not say that. Bad authority is bad, good authority is good, and the difference between the two, well, bad authority is for the good of self, and good authority is for the good of who? Others, not yourself. He says, don't be like the bad authorities who merely call themselves benefactors. But not this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. He gives two examples of what we are to be like, a young child and a servant. The word here is deacon, right? The, where we get the word deacon, a servant, a minister. We all know that children can be self-centered, right? And servants can be all about their own comfort and their own kingdom. But children also have the uncanny ability to be concerned about others. Yes, they need, but they also perceive needs. When, when mommy cries, the two-year-old is concerned. And they often join in without even fully understanding why she's crying. And the servant who is a servant indeed, he expends his energy for the good of others. Yes, there, there is self-interest at work in the work of servants, but a true servant having in mind the God above and the man beside gives. In both cases, the self is not primary. Their lives are lived not as constant self-service, but in self-giving sacrifice. And they wait for their reward to come from God. For who is great, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? And we're sort of left up in the air when Jesus says that. Of course, it's the one being served, right? Jesus says, not so fast. <laughs> but I am among you as the one who serves. It's not the ones who recline. 
It's the one who serves. Just as it is more blessed to give than to receive, so it is true that it is that the greater man is the one who serves rather than the one who is served. The good boss sees to the good of his employees. The good pastor sees to the good of his church. The good police officer sees to the good of his community. Right? The good doctor works to the to the health and strength of his patients. The good mother sees to the good of her children. The good husband sees to the good of his wife. They all use their authority as Jesus did, which is to the glory of God and the blessing of others. Are you among the others as the one who serves? That's a tough question. So often, even as we are serving others, we are doing we are doing that service just so we can move on to the next thing, which likely is the me time. So it's not about serving the others, it's about getting past the serving of others so that we can spend our time on our precious selves. Never, ever in the moment. Always wanting to be in the next moment. Not so with Jesus. Out of love for his Father and love for you, he came and he died. Now, I want to grab these last few verses up to verse 30. Consider... I mean, consider the incredible kindness of Jesus now toward these men who are arguing about who is greatest. What does he do? He praises them. He's now praising them. He, he, he now commends them for the greatest thing they did, which is they stood by Jesus during his trials. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow, there's great risk in Jesus saying this to these men who are arguing about their greatness. They're going to sit on thrones judging. This life... Let's not run past this. This life was, as Jesus says, a series of trials, temptations for the Son of God. They stood by him through his trials. These temptations were real and particularly difficult because he saw them through without ever once giving in and sinning. And these men were beside him during that. But again, think of the kindness of Jesus toward these bickering men. He commends them for standing with him. He promises them food and drink at the head table in his kingdom. He determines that they are going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's all like over-the-top honor for these men. It's truly incredible greatness. These men minus one will have high positions In heaven, though their lives here will be filled with trials and temptations, and all of them will die for Jesus and die like Jesus. 
And so it's going to be with you and with me. The least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist was in this life. Honor and glory. Temptations and trials now. Honor and glory in the life to come. And so, know your littleness now. Know and and amplify your littleness now. And live for the honor you will receive Not now, but in the life to come. Serve, expend your energy for others, and wait. Wait for the reward. Can we wait a little bit? Wait. And as fuel to keep going when serving is difficult, and you just want time for yourself to go up on top of a mountain and smoke a pipe and Think your own thoughts and silence and solitude. Remember Jesus as he was in this life. Exhausted. And after he got done exhausted, he saw the people that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he went and ministered to them even further. He wanted to go on the mountain and pray to his father, and no, there were people to be ministered to, and he went and ministered to the people. And so we find out that his bread, his rest, his, his, his work was to do the will of the father, not his own will. It was to do the will of his father. To our comfort. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would forgive us for constantly in conversations routing things so that we can speak of the triumphs and the glories and the 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 wins and the uh, the things that we've done so well that make us seem smart and strong and worthy. When the the reality of the matter is, is we're horrible sinners who need every bit of your grace for our salvation. And so, Father, give us repentance for our self-centeredness and help us to live for the comfort, the strength, the upbuilding, the peace of others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.